Christians. Thanks for tuning into the show today. We really appreciate it. Normally, We Are Just Christians is a live call-in show. We take your calls and comments, but we can't do that today. Uh, I've, I'm out of town and uh, can't be here, and so we're gonna, we made this recording a couple of days ago, and that's why we're not going to take your calls. I don't want you calling Ray at the station there. He, he won't like to have to answer your questions, so we'll, leave, <laughs> we'll take that on next week, Lord willing, when we're back live on the air. But you can, you can take a look at our website, which is wearejustchristians.com. Wearejustchristians.com. You can uh, look at that and probably have comments there. And I will give you the text numbers, even though I won't be able to respond. Gary won't be able to respond to that. I'll give those to you in just a moment. But We Are Just Christians is a, is a call-in show uh, that's about being just a New Testament Christian here in the 21st century, getting past and beyond behind back behind all of the human traditions and errors and things that have been added to God's word, all the philosophies, even from a secular standpoint. And so we delve into all kinds of different issues, not only issues in the general world at large, in politics and religion. Sometimes we're dealing with errors in denominational churches. Sometimes we're talking about people's personal difficulties that they might have. We talk about how, how to have good character as a servant of Christ, anything like that's on the table, any issue of spirituality, any question you have about Christian evidences or apologetics, whatever you want to talk about. Anything about the Bible. We, we will do our best to give you a scriptural answer to that question and point you in the right direction. We may not give, be able to give you uh, the final answer, a thorough answer. We'll give you some scripture to look at. And if we can't, we're going to tell you, well, we need some time to think about that and study it. So, yeah. uh you can get a hold of us. You can text us this week, although we won't be able to respond until later, at 772-260-6120. That's Mike's number, 772-260-6120. You can text Gary at 772-260-6220, 772-260-6220. So we'll leave the call-off, call-in numbers to a later date. Hopefully we'll be back on the air live with you next week. But Gary, uh, aside from any more introduction, and perhaps we should make some more, we have new listeners, I'm sure, from time to time, but this show is a little bit freewheeling. We talk about different subjects, and, and a couple of weeks ago, we had a call from a fellow, uh, if my memory is correct, named Bill, and he was talking about the fact that, according to his understanding, that no one could even understand or hear the word of God until God acted upon their heart in a miraculous fashion and the Holy Spirit had to uh, regenerate them as you were, as it were, before they could even understand the Bible at all. So it would do no good to, to talk about Bible verses or no good to talk about scriptures with someone or to preach them a sermon or teach them because until they have been made alive by the Holy Spirit in his view, they're dead and they can't even hear. And the question the question you have is that apparently is God acting directly upon someone is is basically the the basis for everything that that person does. In other words, God does everything, you don't do anything. Right. It it takes away man's action in all this. Now what we believe and it takes away man's true. responsibility exactly. for that. 
What we believe is true according to the Bible more correctly is that God plays his role in the salvation of man in, in bringing Jesus to the world and providing a, a blood sacrifice for all of us. And then he, he through the Holy Spirit and the working of the word, which is most, most important, helps us to remain faithful to God and so forth. But man plays an important role in this. God has not designed the world or human nature so that we don't have a choice or we have no ability in the world to do anything. I think our caller was trying to say that man has complete inability to do anything that is good or righteous without hearing the word. Now, we tried to present during our, a long, uh, involved conversation on the air a couple of weeks ago some scriptures that would indicate that his position was incorrect. I don't think that he agreed with us, obviously, in that time period. But uh, I thought today, not to be unfair to him, because he can call back any time, but I thought since we had this subject sitting there and we weren't sure what would happen in the intervening week last week when the show was live, not sure what kind of calls we're going to get or what subject to address. Sometimes we get redirected. Sometimes we get redirected. So I thought we would just deal with a few of these things today. Now, I think what the, the – I, I don't know if he would agree with this label, so I'm not trying to put a label on our caller, but I think from what I understand him to say – I would say that his, his general belief would fall into the category of what's called in religious teaching Calvinism. And uh, although I won't describe everything, we're going to talk about that today. I'm not going to talk about so much what he said, but we're going to talk about the idea of Calvinism. Now, Calvinism is an extremely important religious teaching uh, created, and he was expanding upon things taught previously, but by John Calvin in the 1500s, which formed the basis of the today's Presbyterian Church and many, many other denominations, it's often called Reformed theology and so forth, and I know that there are different, as it were, flavors of Calvinists, some five point, some three point, etc., but we won't be able to delve into all of that. I was going to ask you a Probably question. Probably cross Mike. your eyes was, if we did delve into it on the radio. Yeah, was, was John Calvin a contemporary of Martin Luther, or did he come much he, he later? Was a little, not much later. He was a little younger. Now, okay. Luther was in Germany. Calvin was in Switzerland for the most part. Okay. And they, they did overlap some, and yet they disagreed about a few pretty important things. Martin Luther believed, for example, that if something was not specifically forbidden in the Bible, that it was permissible, like in worship. If it wasn't specifically forbidden, it was permissible. John Calvin took, I believe, a more correct position, strangely enough, and he said, no, it, unless it's explicitly permitted in Scripture, like in worship or for the church, it's, it's uh, not permitted. It's, it's to be uh, avoided. So he took a position that the scriptures were inclusive and you leave off what's not in the scripture. Um, that's why we don't do certain things because the scripture tells us what to do. God can't right. possibly right. list all the things that's wrong to do. He tells us what to do. For example, our worship services. We don't have theatrical productions because the Bible tells us what to do in our worship and the theater is not one of them. Okay. Right. And uh, things like that. that. That may be a poor example. That's what I can think of on top of it. But you know, they, they were somewhat contemporaries, and yet they disagreed. And what they had in common was that they were, they were making an attempt to reform the Roman Catholic Church initially. I don't think Luther, to be fair to him, ever intended to start a new church. But because of the reaction of the Catholic Church to his teachings, rather than let him, let, rather than reform themselves, they pushed him out and all of his followers, and tried to kill him and his followers, and so they were essentially forced to form their own groups according to their own conscience. Of which it seems... Uh, it seems he he lived and died as a Catholic priest, well, okay? But it seems interesting to me that he 
he personally uh, did not want his followers to name themselves Lutherans. No, he said he was a miserable, miserable quote, a miserable bag of bones and dust, and he didn't want anybody to call themselves Lutherans, which of course they did, and do to this very day. Uh, Calvin was a more of a firebrand, an independent thinker. He was a pretty strict and harsh man in a lot of ways, and he he became a political figure in the city of Geneva, Switzerland, and he, he incorporated a lot of political stuff in with his teaching, in with his church things. We, he didn't, there weren't quite as much of a separation back then. And uh, his followers became very, very intense and dogmatic and so forth. But now Luther, Calvin and Luther both, Gary, even though I disagree with both of them about many, many things fundamentally, were both great thinkers and courageous men. I'm not going to take that away from them. So I'm not trying to attack these men. I'm trying to attack the position that they took, which I think is unscriptural, in particular about salvation. And, and like, like in all the cases that I've found, Mike, I would say that some of the things that both of them wrote were scriptural. Oh, yes, because, they're, because they were good men. They were trying to follow the Bible. I believe they were misguided. And here's the trouble. Uh, Luther and Calvin both created, strange enough, their own philosophical system or systematic theology, and that's the about major the Bible. error. And that's and the, the error. Yes, fundamental. that's the major fundamental error. So they, they come up. So whatever starting point you make, then if that point is wrong, then everything else behind it becomes corrupted. Well, see, that's one of the. And things. that's what I want to talk about this morning. Right. Well, what that, are the consequences and, and the background of, of this call we had a couple weeks ago? Well, that's one of the things I've been trying to point out in some of the classes here that. And I've been doing this thing on critical thinking, and one of the elements of that critical thinking is objectivity. In other words, in your thoughts and in your analysis and in your comparison of Scripture and data that you have, which essentially is Scripture in your past, basically if you have an agenda or you have a bias, it's going to destroy your ability to do a good analysis of what you're looking at. And that, and that I think that's basically what these men did in forming this philosophy. Right. Uh, the, the idea that a man is, and we're going to go to maybe the scripture that he quoted, that there is none righteous, no, not one, that kind of thing, and see what the Bible says about that. We've got to keep that in its context and use that scripture appropriately like we do all the others. Uh, and, and the reason he had no answer to my questions, for example, about Acts chapter 2, and whether those people had free will to obey God or disobey God, is because there is no Calvinist answer to that that doesn't sound, um, you know, unbiblical. But the whole underpinning of this, Gary, is the idea of free will. The question of whether man has free will is the big question. And many religious errors and today many philosophical errors that we see in the secular or scientific world Go back to this question philosophically of whether man ha indeed does have free will. Well, the Bible, will, I think, indicates that he does. Well, free will and the ability to exercise. To exercise the will. Now, by that I don't mean we can decide we're going to fly and we don't. I'm talking about in matters of choice, whether we can make a choice given alternatives. And we can make that choice, even though we have influences on both sides of this, that we can make that choice of our own volition and then be held responsible for that choice. What Calvinism says is you can't make that choice, and yet God's going to hold you responsible for that choice that you can't make. And yeah. we'll see that in a moment, you see. Yes. To say that the only way that you can be saved is if God 
gives you the Holy Spirit first, not after that, but before that, God has to give you the Holy Spirit so you can even hear his word or even want to hear his word. When you say that, that sounds very religious, but the, con the real consequence of that or the antecedent of that is that until God chooses you in particular to open your heart or to do something to you, you're lost. And that brings up the question, it's, therefore, since you have no free will, that God created you with no free will, then therefore you have to be lost because God's choosing not to save you. So God so, then has to, chooses to let some people have their heart open to hear the gospel, and some people he chooses to keep their heart closed, and they're just eternally lost. There's nothing they can do about it, and no reading of the Bible, no, nothing they can do can ever change that until God chooses somehow to open their heart to hear his word. So if God is not going to be partial to some people as opposed to others, he either has to condemn them all or save them all. Well, that, that true? that's another that's another problem because, you know, who who does he choose? Well, the Calvinist says that there are only some that are elect and so forth. So this thing goes back to free will. Now, I think the Bible teaches that man's will has been strongly influenced by sin itself, beginning with our with the act of, with the influence of Satan upon Adam and Eve, and they gave in to his temptation, and they sinned. Now, the Calvinist says at that point, all of man became totally corrupted from that point on. No one can ever choose to do good again. In fact, the Presbyterian con confession of faith that, that uh, John Calvin uh, wrote or approved of that came along right after his teaching is that man became utterly disposed to do evil, is wholly inclined to do evil, cannot even think any good thought ever again. No human can ever even think a good thought because he's been corrupted by Adam's sin. He's totally hereditarily depraved. Now, Gary, you and I believe some people are depraved, don't we? Yes. And the Bible teaches that. But we do not believe that man is totally depraved so that he can never do anything that might be good or even might want to turn to God in when God chastises him in his life or he hears the gospel. We don't believe that he is totally depraved, nor do we believe that he is totally, totally hereditarily depraved. The Bible teaches no such thing as that, even though because it's very clear in the book of Ezekiel, he says the father will not bear the iniquity of the son, son, nor will the son bear the iniquity of the father. But what? The soul that sinneth, it shall die. And he also okay. says in Ezekiel about uh, warning the people. 3 and 18, chapter 3 and yeah, 18. Yeah, about warning people. He says if you don't warn them, if you don't tell them this is coming, I'm going to hold you responsible for it. Yes. So, so how does God do that if it's all on his part? Now, now in, in, re, in this whole thing, the reason we want to talk about this is not to criticize what Bill said on the phone call, but more of a general purpose, that there are a lot of people that listen to the show who have probably been taught and influenced by this doctrine, whether they know it or not, that man is totally depraved, or as the Catholic, teach, Catholic teaching before Martin Luther taught that, uh, the doctrine of original sin, the original sin of Adam and Eve was passed on to all their descendants, and therefore man has fallen into sin. We don't deny that people are influenced to do wrong by people by the circumstances they're born into, but we we think the Bible teaches that even people in bad circumstances can make a choice to do what's right, and they can be influenced by the preaching and teaching of God's word and God's influence uh, to even among the pagans. The sin reigned upon the just and the unjust. 
and to fill their hearts with food and gladness, as Paul says in Acts 13, that even they can be influenced to turn toward God a little bit at a time to be nudged toward him without the miraculous intervention of the Holy Spirit to change their nature. Well, he also says he so put the Bible's e clear about this, I think. Well, he also says he put eternity in their hearts. And man, I believe, is naturally disposed in many ways to look for God. Right. But well, sometimes he says doesn't like we what seek he after him. We, we, we can and he tells them very clearly in Acts 17 that man, man can seek after God. He's not far from us, it says. And he's trying to influence those pagans on Mars Hill to believe what he says. He doesn't call for an intervention of the Holy Spirit on Mars Hill in speaking to those pagans in Acts 17. He tells them that God's near to you. You need to hear his word and listen to what I'm saying. And he then presents the gospel of Christ. You know, Jesus said, Gary, and we're kind of going around in circles, but Jesus said, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. And I, when I am lifted up, will draw all men to myself. How does God draw people? Jesus said God draws people now, I know the Calvinists will say, yeah, you can't come to God until God draws you. I agree with that in that sense. How does God draw you, though? That's the well, question. That's the question. They want to make it a miraculous event. Jesus <laughs> said, when I'm lifted up on the cross and you can see me, the crucified Savior, and how I lived and what I, what I am and, my, and then eventually my resurrection from this cross, then you will be drawn to me. And those are the people that are drawn to Christ. And so he's trying to show them in Acts 17, even these pagans, he presents the crucified Christ to them, and they rejected it on that day. But he tells them God is near. You can believe him. You can hear him. And he didn't call for a miracle of the Holy Spirit or a regeneration before they could hear. The same thing is true of Paul's other sermons. So this is why I reject the idea that men are totally, that's a big word, hereditarily, that's a big word, depraved. You have to look at the words that are stated. So don't fall for this. Now, it goes back to free will. Now, Gary, I don't know where you were going to go with this, but let me go one place real quick. Yeah, no, go, go ahead with that. Because, because we, we got a bunch, we, I mean, there's so much in the Bible mm -hmm. about this, we're never going to be able to cover it today. But I want to go back and just take a look to, about this idea whether people have free will, whether somehow the Holy Spirit has to change their heart before they can do anything that's good. And what I, I usually start with Adam, the man Adam, the first, Adam and Eve. Well, we'll just take Adam, Adam and Eve, we'll put them together, but let's take Adam. Here, uh, God creates Adam, and in the book of Genesis, it says he was made in the likeness of God, in the image of God. And when God got done creating everything at the end of chapter 1, verse 31, he says, Behold, it was very good. Can we conclude at that point that Adam was totally hereditarily depraved? No. And even the Calvinists would agree that Adam was free from sin. And then it, he tells Adam... I've given you every tree to eat in the garden and every every fruit and tree, and you can eat of those except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of that you shall not eat, and you shall not eat it, and if you do, you will die. Now, the question I have about that is, did Adam have a choice in that matter? Could he freely exercise the choice to eat of the tree or not eat of the tree? And, of course, what's the answer? He had a choice. He had a choice. And it, it's obvious from the statement there that God makes that he has a choice to do that. And and yet Satan comes along to this creature, to, to, to Adam and Eve. Satan comes along. I'm sorry. I think my Apple Watch is Siri is trying to talk to me <laughs> on the radio. Siri, we are not taking calls today. Anyway, um, the... Um, 
Satan comes along and tempts Eve and Adam, and they both sin of their own free will. Satan tempts Eve, Eve tempts Adam, Adam. and they both sin. And God punishes them by driving them away from the tree of life. There's nothing stated in there that this fall corrupted all of man's nature and made man from that point on totally incapable of ever doing anything right. Nothing is stated about this there. In fact, he goes on to tell Adam and Eve, you know, go and work in the garden. He's got other commands for them. We see that their descendants begin to serve the Lord through Seth. Uh, apparently well, there's... Look at what he said to Cain before Cain sinned. Well, I was, yeah, I was getting to chapter 4. Yes. You got yeah. Now, according to the Calvinist, when Adam and Eve sinned, all of their posterity from, from uh, Cain and Abel onward were totally, now listen what they're saying, totally hereditarily depraved. depraved. So who could they can't? I, I need to find that quote I've got here somewhere. I didn't even look it up. So Abel Calvin. could not offer a, a, a pleasing sacrifice to God without he miraculous would be incapable action. of doing it because he wouldn't even want to do a sacrifice to God. According to our caller a couple weeks ago, he wouldn't even want to do what was right. Is that the picture you have of Abel? Bring a, a pleasing Jesus sacrifice Christ. to the Lord, and the Lord being pleased with it. It says, it says, he even says there that he accepted the offering of Abel and not of Cain, because one was made by faith and one was not made by faith, according to Hebrews eleven. But that's an impossibility, according to the Calvinists, unless some miraculous thing has happened between these two people. Well, I keep thinking of, of Genesis four and verse six. What what yes. God said to Cain. He says, so the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why, are, why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do, do not do well, sin lies at the door. And it's desires for you, but you should rule over it. Now listen, Derry, that's, a, that's an extremely important verse in the Bible in regard to this subject. Because according to the Calvinist, Cain was totally hereditarily depraved and couldn't even desire to do anything that was good. So, okay? he, so he, he was incapable of ruling over that sin. He, and, and therefore, since he was totally depraved, according to our call a couple weeks ago and others, he could not, he could not rule over his sin. But apparently God expected him to. God told him to do it, and he said that he, 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 he couldn't do it, okay? Uh, well, I'm trying to saying that wrong. God said he could do it and should do it, but according to Calvin and the others, he couldn't do it. Uh, and that's, a, that's the danger, I think. Basically, we're, we're coming to that. That is the danger of this agenda or what I will call a philosophy. What you call a philosophy is probably a better word, but it turns out to be an agenda in the reading of the scriptures. Well, it's a, yes, it's a philosophy. That's it's right. a philosophy. If you read the scripture through that filter, then what you've got to do is you've got to make up things that are not recorded here at all. Right. There's even a bigger problem with this when you read the Presbyterian Catechism that John Calvin is behind, although okay. I don't know that he authored it personally. Here's what it says that makes this issue of Cain and Abel even more complicated. God, from all eternity, according to the Presbyterian Catechism, did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. So, 
when God made Adam and Eve sinless, God had willed that. He had unchangeably ordained. Before he ever made them, he had unchangeably ordained it. Okay? It's one thing to say God ordained something. Quite another to say he unchangeably ordains it. And then when Adam and Eve sinned, when God, to when God told them, don't eat of the fruit, God ordained that they shouldn't eat of the fruit. But when they did eat it, the Presbyterian Catechism says he had already, already, previously, before the foundation of the world, ordained that they should eat of it and had to eat of it. So when he said, you have a choice, eat or don't eat, the Catechism says you don't. They had no choice. They had to eat. God had already foreordained it. And yet, and yet then after they ate of it, which they couldn't help but do it because God had foreordained that they were going to do it, he condemned them for it. Now, so, so what, how, what, does this, so, what does this say about the character of God according to John well, Calvin? Okay, well, the Scripture says God is a just God. How is that just? Well, that's right. And, and the same thing with Cain. He said to Cain, Cain, sin lies at the door. You rule over it. He had already ordained that Cain would not rule over it and could not rule over it because he hey, he didn't have choice, free choice so in why, the matter. Well, now, in today, in our, in our system, if, we, if somebody can prove that they didn't have a choice about doing something or basically that they were uh, undeniably disposed to it through some mental problem, we don't punish them. Why was Cain punished? That would be my question. Why is Cain, why is Cain punished? Why is Abel punished? Why is Adam and Eve punished for something that they were forced to do? Right. Well, that's the question. And then if he, uh, according to... Um, uh, so we don't have, uh, under, under the Calvinist system, we do not have a just God, is what we're saying. Well, they would say, well, you don't have a right to say that because you're not God and you're questioning the sovereignty of God. Now, that's another issue. The sovereignty of God is another whole issue uh, in this case. But, uh, uh, the, but the point like I'm making is seems, that there... It seems like there are logical fallacies when you, in this. When, well, yes, but, but it's a logical system. If you start off with the idea that man does not have free will and therefore and man is totally depraved, you now have to come to a system where what our caller said was that you can't ever know what to do yourself. It takes God doing something to you, okay, to do that. Uh, let me see if I can find this quote here. I really thought that I had it in front of me, uh, but I don't. Uh, I'll find it here. I thought I had the quote about depravity because I, I don't think I'm really um, – I don't think I'm really explaining this very well uh, in this case. But Calvin, but when we start off with the fact that man's totally depraved by his sin, therefore it takes a miracle of the Holy Spirit to open his heart so he can be, be saved, what you're really saying is that God has to save the person, and he has to choose people. And you have to come up against the fact some people are saved, some people are lost. I'll, I'll, I'll go back to the example we used in Acts chapter 2 a couple weeks ago, Gary where Peter preaches to these Jews who some of them had done wickedness. They were all sinners, but some of them had done wickedness by crucifying the Lord. And when he preached this sermon, under the power of the Holy Spirit, they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? And he told them in that case to repent and be baptized for the remission of their sins, and you can receive the gift of the, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So 
the repentance and baptism come before the reception of the Holy Spirit, Spirit right. in that case. And then it says that, that some of them, 3,000 in fact in this case, uh, that 3,000 of them did obey and were baptized on that day and were saved. He said, save yourselves. That indicates free will to me. Peter said to them in verse 41 well, how, 42, well, the save is, yourselves from this crooked generation. How, how, how do you save yourself if you have no choice? In That's it? my point. You have to have some kind, of a cho uh, some kind of a point in this matter. You have to have some kind of choice in the matter or you can't save yourself. And, and the point is, since he's, on that day, since some of the people heard him and obeyed, and some heard him and disobeyed. Now, what does that say? Well, what it says, is, according to John Calvin, is that God had already chosen before the world began those who would respond to the teaching of the gospel or be saved, and he had already chosen before the foundation of the world that some people would not be saved. Okay? He had already made that election and that's one of the that's the U of the tulip. Total depravity is the T of the tulip. U the U of the tulip is unconditional election. That God unconditionally elected some people to be saved, even before they hear the gospel or even born, and others before they are born are destined to be lost, and nothing they could ever do could ever change that point. In fact, God unchangeably ordained that they would be lost. So what he's saying is God's never going to change what he decided. Well, that's what it, it, I think that's what unchangeably means, means yes. that even if they repent, he wouldn't. But the Bible's full of cases where God tells somebody something, they repent, and he changes what he does. The, the outcome is changed by, what, by their repentance, you see. Um, that, that's, the, um, that's the gist of it. Okay. So does the Bible teach that man has free will? Yes. Does it teach that the man, will of man can be corrupted by being influenced by evil? Yes. Yes, it does. Okay, it teaches that. But does that mean it's beyond our power until God somehow does a miracle on our hearts to change us? No, doesn't mean that at all. And that's the real problem with it. Then you get into the problem of God beforehand choosing some to be saved and some to be lost. Now, we didn't ask uh, our caller about this, but I almost guarantee you that you have to believe that because the Bible says in, in the preaching of the gospel in several cases that there were some who believed and some who didn't believe under the... Well, when Paul made his speech on Mars Hill to the philosophers that's recorded in Acts 17, he preached a sermon. Who gave him the words of that sermon? The Holy Spirit. Spirit. So here's the Spirit speaking to these men who are not saved. And it says that some believed and some mocked him. Now, what's the difference there? Well, the Calvinists can only say, well, some have been chosen to be saved. Some have been chosen to be lost. The preaching of the gospel, even the influence of the Holy Spirit wasn't enough because God had already foreordained that they were going to be lost. Now, Paul didn't apparently didn't believe that. He was discouraged by those events. He didn't understand that some had been foreordained to be lost and some saved, or he wouldn't have been discouraged. He would have said, well, that's the way it is. I'm just, you know, finding the ones well, God's already preordained. Well, if Paul believed that, that uh, some were foreordained to be lost and some saved, and they had no choice in it, and why was he out there preaching is my question. Well, that's, what, 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 what would motivate Paul to do that? That's one of the big that? problems on 
that's one of the big problems on uh, with, with this whole system is that there's no place for trying to do evangelism or anything like that because God's already decided who he's going to save, okay? Um, and, and they can say, well, you still have to let the Holy Spirit do its work and all this, but there's no real reason. It's already been decided, and nothing that you could say or do could, could ever change that fact, you see. And um, th- that's, the whole, that's the whole gist of this point. Does man have ability to do anything? Yes. Will he be influenced by evil and by his own, de- own de- depravity or wickedness? Yes. Now this brings up the issue of uh, what, where the call started a couple weeks ago with the idea of um, you know, people responding to the gospel of Christ and so forth, it brings up the issue of does a person have any way that they could hear the word of God and believe it until God acts upon their heart? That's a point that I dispute, and we, I want all of you who are listening to understand that it's not an argument with Bill or anybody else. It's just a point you should understand. The Bible from front to back is very clear that the Holy Spirit gives the word of God to man now we have that word of God in written form and even when people who are preaching that word like we try to do here we take that word and we present it to men in understandable form and we explain it or we read it to them that we believe there is power in that word to change a person's mind even if they are lost and or having are influenced by wickedness that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, according to Hebrews 12, even to the dividing of, of the thoughts and intents of the, the heart. heart. Okay, And it can pierce even that soul that is dead in sin, and it can cause that person to be pricked in their heart and to change their mind. I think that's what the Scripture says, that the word of God was designed to pierce the shell of a dead heart and turn that person back to God. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. In his view, or many people's view, the only way the Holy Spirit can work is by doing something miraculous on a person by some miraculous manifestation. I believe the Holy Spirit works through his word to pierce the heart, even of those who have tur- are turned against Christ, and then they can make a choice within their heart to reject it or obey it. Well, that's why I think Jesus could say very justly in, in uh John twelve forty eight, uh, that we have that which will judge us in the last day. He says, the word that I have spoken will judge us in the last day. That's the standard. That makes that statement basically a just statement, in my right, view. Right. Th- there are many places, and I, I, Mike, while you were talking, I, I was looking up some of the places where, you know, God ta- where the scripture talks about God being a just God. And a lot of times it's in the context of good and evil and bringing about punishment on evil people and so on. Uh, God's view of justice from the scripture is, is not really far from some of the things that you and I learned classically as uh, used to be taught in our schools. I don't think it's taught anymore, but basically the punishment of evil and what is evil and what is good and what is bad is what we learn from scripture. And if God claims to be a just God and then condemns us for things that are not in the scripture, then I think we, we, we've got a problem here. Uh, 
it's just it's just my view. This is one of the thoughts I had on this as I was looking through some of these things. Well, I think and he says there is no other God beside me, a just God and Savior. There is none beside me. Basically, he says that in Isaiah forty-five. Uh, so, how can God say that? Right. Now, just go back. Let's go back though. To I found that quote by the way. There's several of them, but I found the one I wanted to find from the Presbyterian Catechism of Faith. The West, this is the West, the Presbyterian Confession of Faith. I think it's also repeated in the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a source book for this teaching. And it's spread in various forms and diluted forms into many, many Christian denominations. So even if you're not a Presbyterian, you're listening, you're your preachers and pastors may be influenced by this thinking in some way. And probably in the same way, maybe the Catholic Church is influenced through original sin. Here's what it says, Gary. By this sin, eating the forbidden fruit, they, our first parents, Adam and Eve, fell from their original righteousness and communion with God and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of the soul and body. Thus they, being the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin was imputed, to this, and the same death and sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from this. And it goes on to say that they are so corrupted, whereby from this original con- corruption, whereby we, their descendants, are utterly, listen to these words, utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to do all evil, and do from this such proceed all actual transgressions. Now, if this is the case, there is the devil can't be any worse than that. Well, then how can the, the devil be any worse than what I just said? Then, then how on earth does Joshua tell the people of Israel choose, choose you this day whom you will serve? Sir. Well, how does he tell Cain, you rule over it? He has become wholly indisposed in body, mind, and soul, and opposite of all good, and wholly inclined to do evil. And yet, here's God telling Cain, "You rule over it." Here's him holding. Here's him holding. Every other descendant of Adam was now inclined to do evil, and God keeps holding them accountable for doing good and judging them when they don't. And He keeps telling them to do good. Over and over, he keeps telling them to do good, knowing that they can't do good, good. because they're wholly inclined to do evil. It, it's, a, it's a terrible system, and it doesn't fit the body. Now, you can throw out a, a verse that says, oh, there's none righteous, no, not one. Take it out of context and make it sound like this. But the statement that there's none righteous, no, not one, book of Romans chapter 3, isn't saying what the Presbyterian Catechism here says. What it means, that it, what it means in the context of Romans 3 is that both Jew and Gentile have sinned against God and as in general have, have done wickedly. Is that true? Yes. Of course. Does it mean that there's none righteous? Well, he calls Noah righteous. He calls Job righteous. He calls Daniel righteous. He calls Cornelius righteous. And Cornelius wasn't even a Christian yet. Well, and not only does he call him righteous. He was a proselyte, but he wasn't Christian. Well, and not only does he call him righteous, he calls him a just man. Just man. I shouldn't say that. He and they him. said. I shouldn't Corn- say he was a proselyte. He, he did recognize God. Cornelius it says, did. and they said Cornelius, a centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nations of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and hear words from you. Right. Why? Because just before that, when Cornelius was instructed, he said, 
send to Simon Peter, and he will tell you words by which you will be saved. The words. The well, words. the words are from the Holy Spirit. The words leaving, from, we're not leaving the Spirit out of this. Even but those the, words came from the Holy Spirit. They came through Peter, from the Holy not Spirit, a, through not Peter, miraculously, but through, through Peter. Peter. Right. So now, that that it just doesn't fit with that. Right. And when he says that the, the, the when the, you read the Catechism, and this is what our caller was, I think, trying to say that there's none righteous, no one, no no one can even. He he said that we are we that anybody who has not been affected by the Spirit miraculously hates God. And if you remember the call, I disputed that. I said, I've known many people that don't believe in God. I don't think they hate God. I know people that have done wickedly, terrible sins. I don't believe they hate God, and I don't believe that they're wholly inclined to do evil continually. Now, there's generations in general described that it was the intention of man's heart to do evil continually. That's a general statement about mankind before the flood. But then Noah found grace in the eyes of God. Why did Noah find grace? Because Noah listened to God and did what he said. It's very clear from the Bible that that's the case. But if, if man is this bad, utterly disposed, disabled, opposite to all good, holy, inclined to do all evil, not only can the devil not do any worse than that, but how is it that you read in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13, that evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse? He pictures a time coming when evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse. I thought men were wholly inclined to do evil. Just your average, ordinary Joe walking the streets was as bad as it could ever get according to this catechism. And yet Paul tells Timothy they're going to get worse. Well, now, if I understand English, and I think I do, it's not possible for that scripture in 2 Timothy to be true if the Presbyterian catechism is true and if the idea that is presented in Calvinism, that until the Holy Spirit acts upon you miraculously, you're, you can't even listen to God's word or hear it because you're totally evil and you hate God, then, then how is it that you get worse and worse? I, I think I'll take Paul in 2 Timothy over the catechism, okay, and over this whole idea because what the Bible presents is that God through the Spirit can, can work on you. Here's another scripture that doesn't seem to pertain. But remember when the Apostle Paul in Acts 9 was struck on the road to Damascus. He was a persecutor of the church. He was a Pharisee and who was against the initial the first Christians and tried to persecute and kill Christians. And God, Christ, appeared to him on the road to Damascus. And he said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And why do you kick against the goads or the pricks? I think that last statement is interesting because it indicates that there were things going on in Paul's life that God was showing him, presenting to him, that were nudging him away from his position of persecuting the church. God was goading him. Well, you have to and realize... And then he had this one event that galvanizes it all. Yeah. He kind of got the two before between the eyes, but but, but he was being prodded before that, not well, by miraculous events, but by providence and God's in, the influence of others. Well, he, had, he wasn't responding properly. Well, he had a knowledge of the scripture right. that, that should have been tremendous for a man of his background. And here, the scriptures, when you look at when it, when you look at those, they're pointing to the Christ. Right. Not not directly. Now, this is I'm going to go aside a little bit here, but um, this is an important point when we start reading about prophecy. Prophecy in the Bible is not to the degree that you can predict what will happen in the future. 
prophecy I believe in the Bible is to the degree that you can recognize it when it comes. Right. And that's what they were expected to do. I think Paul was expected to recognize it, but he, he was resisting it. Probably, I think, for the same reason. He had been trained up from a point, and he had a bias that he was looking to the Jews. And that bias had to be treated. And that's what that's what Jesus treated on the road to Damascus was that bias. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I've seen this in my own life as a preacher now for 45 years, the time I was a young man, going out trying to meet people and teach them the gospel and working with them uh, over t- a period of time. I see people that I have to move from a very obstinate position against God to belief. Sometimes I can help do that. And how do I do that, Gary? by presenting as effectively as I can what the scriptures say and getting them to understand. And you, when, I, when I do that, what am I using? I'm using the Holy Spirit to do that, aren't I? Because the Holy Spirit gave us Gave us those words and, he, and, and so forth. And then when, when I, I find some people, though, by the time I meet them, they've already had a lot of experience. They may have done a lot of bad things. They've had some bad experiences. Maybe they're wondering what they should do. They don't know what to do. And when I present what the Holy Spirit says in the scriptures to do, they respond. The Holy Spirit's working in all of this. This isn't a denial of the Holy Spirit. It's a, it's a denial of the manner in which the Holy Spirit operates on the heart. And I believe from what I've seen, these people are making free choices, both to accept and to reject what I'm saying. And they can do that before they become a Christian, and they can do that after they become a Christian. They can reject what God says, okay, and they can do wrong. Now, Calvinism denies that point also because, what, Gary, look, if you have God doing all the work to save you and you have no influence on that whatsoever because you're depraved and then God saves you of his own choice without any effort on your part whatsoever or decision on your part, you certainly can't do anything after that to lose your salvation because God gave it to you apart from your own choice. You have no choice in the matter at all. And it's never changing. It doesn't change. It's unchanged to be ordained before the foundation of the world that you're going to be lost or saved. And so once he saves you, it's unchangeably ordained. In fact, he doesn't save you in time. You've already been saved before the foundation of the world, according to this theory. Why? Eventually, it becomes nonsense. So why did Jesus come if you've been... It's a good question. That's the question. It could all have been settled without the choice of history. Right. Uh, did Pilate have a choice? Did Jesus have a choice, choice in the Garden of Gethsemane? Did Judas have a choice? I mean, you, you can go all through the Bible and you find this. And it really comes back to me having a choice in this matter, apart from the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. Now, we haven't even dealt with, and we only got 10 or 15 minutes left here, Gary, but we haven't even dealt with the idea that uh, of how, how the gospel works or what does happen to a person in teaching. But according to the teaching of Calvinism, the way that a person is saved is that they're dead in sin and then God miraculously regenerates them, brings them back to spiritual life. And once they're made alive again, then they can hear his word and be saved. Of course, in truth, according to Calvinism, they've already been saved when he regenerates them. Because it was determined. What I want to know from our caller is, once God regenerates and makes you alive, can you reject his word? And I think the answer would be no. Because if God makes you alive by the Spirit so that you can hear his word, because how do you have a choice then to reject his word? 
But yet, what do we see in the Bible when people hear God's word over and over again? We see them accepting it, well, and we see them rejecting it. Well, the parable of the sower. All the, what the happens with the, the parable the of the sower? The seed is sown and falls on different S kinds of ground. And some spring up, and then what happens? Fruit. Some, some, and some wither away. Uh, you, so, but, but here's the statement I want to, you know, a simple statement from Romans 1.16 doesn't appear to have anything to do with Calvinism, but think about it. Paul says that, that the gospel is the, the power, power of God, God and the salvation, salvation both to the Jew the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, according to the Calvinists, the gospel is the preaching of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, the truth of Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection, and then the preaching of that and what I, got, what I need to do in response to that, which is repent and be baptized, as Peter says, and as Paul says in Romans chapter 6. That's not, according to the Calvinists, the, the power of salvation. The power of salvation is regeneration. The gospel is powerless, because here's the reason I'm saying that. The gospel is powerless to save somebody, according to our caller, until the spirit regenerates him. So the power is not in the gospel that's preached. It's in the regeneration. Paul. It's in the regeneration ahead of that, because without the regeneration, the gospel has no power. Didn't he as much as say that? Isn't that what's being said here? Well, I, I once again, I will accept what Paul says in Romans 1 before, before I will accept the Westminster Catechism or any other catechism or any other philosophy that says that, that anything but the gospel is God's power to salvation. The, the fact that what Paul says is the power to the Jew and the Greek indicates that man has a choice to accept or reject this. That's the point of the gospel. It's the power. It's not doing it against your will, though. Does God exercise his power? Does God exercise the power of the gospel on all men to save them? No, he only exercises power on those who choose to obey, right? Uh, basically, I, I want to go back to something. You and I believe that the Holy Spirit works through the Word of God. I believe that's what you and I both believe. Yes. That there is a working of the Holy Spirit, but he does it through the Word that has been written for us through the apostles. Now, that working through the apostles was a miraculous thing. I don't deny that. Right. The Holy Spirit miraculously worked on the apostles to give us the word as it is written. That had to be done because they had to. Re they, we had to have the men who could reveal it to us. Exactly. We call the New Testament. Now, scripture. I want to go back to this parable. For and a he give the, he gave them the miracles to witness and and signify that they were the appointed ones to speak. He, he put a notary stamp of approval on the men and what they were saying by the miracles that they performed. performed right? Exactly. Okay. Now, I want to go back to this parable of the sower for a minute. Jesus explains that parable of the sower, at least in one place, in Mark 4, beginning in about verse 13. And he says to them, do you not understand this parable? Now, remember, that parable was the sower went out, cast seed, some fell on what? Some fell on stones and sprouted for a moment and then died. Some fell by the wayside and were choked out by the weeds. And some fell on good ground and sprouted and what? Basically, they produced fruit. So he said, understand the power parable. In verse 14, he says something that's very critical. Very short sentence. It's only five words. The sower sows the word. So what he's saying is the word goes out, and he's saying, 
And these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes and immediately takes it away. That the word that was sown in, in their hearts, he says, these likewise are the ones sown on stony ground who when they hear the word immediately receive it with gladness. Now, I didn't think you could receive the word at all. Until God already acted on you. Until God already acted on you. He says, they receive it with gladness, but what happens? After a time, what happens? They they sprout, but the world chokes them out. Well, well yeah, they don't bear fruit because there's then nothing the, there, and they, they die. And they, it says there, it's literally, at, these are they who for a while believe, which contradicts another point of Calvinism, that once you're saved, you can't be lost. Yes. These are the ones who believe, and then they only believe for a while. John and Calvin says that's not possible. Okay. okay. And he goes on to say, but the ones who fall on good ground, these are the ones sown on good ground, those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit, some 30, some 60, and some 100-fold. Right. So what he's saying is... He pictures everybody in the world in those examples. In those Every examples. human in the world is pictured, and you're saying... That there are none of them are pictures being beyond the reach of the word, except by their own choice. Exactly. Okay. That's that's what Jesus' parable says. Now I'm going to go back to John twelve forty eight. What does Jesus say? I'm going to be judged by what? By this word that he speak. just spoke. Right. So I, I I can't. Sorry, I just can't picture a logical progression of having well, a he, just God that right. does what Calvinism he, even says. Even the first group there. That, that he goes on the wayside. It says that the, it falls on the wayside and the devil comes and snatches it away. It says there that, that here clearly that they hear the word, but before it can take root in them, as it were, the devil snatches it away. Calvinism says they can't hear it. They're dead. Our caller said that. They're dead. Dead men can't hear. But these dead men can hear. They just don't believe it. The devil tempts them, and they reject it. Then there are some who hear it, and says, for a these, while they These are the ones it. who hear the word and the cares of the world and this deceitfulness of riches and desires of other things enter and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Yeah, that's the last, the last group. That these so they heard are, it. They understood it. But it becomes unfruitful because they don't. So, so are who, the, who made, who made the choice? Now, here, here's who made what, those choices? Here's what's being said, though, by Calvinism. All, of the, all these people are dead in sin. They can't hear. They can't understand. And that, that uh, God somehow comes along and gives some of them the ability to hear it. But that's not what this says. But this one even says some people who can hear it and believe for a while fall away. And sometimes they let the word choke them out. Well, I thought once God removed the depravity and the wickedness. You can't resist it. You couldn't resist it. And now you've had all the wickedness removed. Your depravity is removed by regeneration. And yet you can't sin. And yet this says you can. This says that some people who have been, quote, unquote, regenerated by the word can fall away again. So something is wrong with a system that says you're depraved ahead of time and you can't choose. And then once you choose, once God chooses you, you can't be lost, and so forth. Something's wrong with the scriptural basis for that. Um, now I want to make a point. I'm going to forget to say this before we get done. I know we've got a couple. Well, of I, I, that just I keep coming back to that parable. I don't see any other way of. I, I confess, I do not see any other way of. Uh, I think that explaining. I that think parable. when people believe that once you're saved, you can't be lost. The simplest verse I know to get them to think about is Jesus' own simple statement 
that these are they who for a while believe and in time of temptation fall away. There are who knows how many people listening to me this morning and you this morning, Gary, who have been taught in favor of children that once you become a Christian and God saves you, and the point of that is God saves you by the power of the Holy Spirit, and since he saves you, you can never be lost. You can't ever fall away. Jesus himself says that you can be saved and, and you can, fall, you can away. fall away. Now, I'll, once again, which statement are you going to believe? What you've been taught growing up by some catechism? And, and they arrive at that conclusion, Gary, not because the scriptures so explicitly teach it. Because on every page of the Bible, the scriptures teach that men can sin and fall away, even among, even among the saved. But they arrive at that philosophically through a series of, a, of, of logical deductions made starting off that, uh, with the idea of total depravity and no free will. And they have to have this system that brings them to the fact that you can never be lost. That's how they get there. And so rather well, than uphold what the scriptures say plainly, and, and they can't even read the verses in the Bible without seeing the system in the verses. That's what, that's what we were facing a couple weeks ago in the call. But when we read Acts 2 about these people responding to the word, it, it was like, you know, bullets off Superman because my philosophy says that they can't hear until they receive the Holy Spirit. Well, the, my philosophy so says the scripture can't say that. Can't so say it, that. So, so it, it can't has to say, say something else. And, rather, and, rather than and, taking it at face value and saying, what does it say here? So let's change my philosophy about that. But... But basically, Mike, I think there's something else that goes with that. It, it influences everything that we see, everything that we read, every passage that we look at when we have that filter or agenda or that philosophy that forces us to do that. You and I talked about one of the basic problems that all Christians face today is understanding the difference between what it means to be spiritual and what it means to be fleshly. Right, and we, we did touch upon that. And we know. don't have time left to no, do that we, today. Maybe but we can do that on our live show coming up soon. But that's but basically you you've got to understand this this filter and philosophy before you can even begin to understand what the definitions are of being spiritual and being fleshly in in your life. It's not that I'm physically in the flesh. Every time I'm all all my life I live in this flesh. Right. There there's just no getting around that. Mm -hmm. But is that what the Bible means by being being in the flesh? The Bible means, and I think you and I would agree, that being in the flesh means that I'm living by all the desires and lusts of the flesh. I'm not being spiritual by living by what God tells me to be through the Spirit, through the Word. So there's a, there's a big difference there in, in the definitions. And, and I'll give up at that point. Well, I think that that's exactly the diff that's exactly what we were trying to get at last week when we talked about. Uh, but you can't you can't get at that until you get through this idea of there's a filter that you're reading everything. Through. Right, and that's Calvinism. I want to say this before we have to close our show today, Gary. Thank you all all for listening. But I know we didn't give anybody a chance to respond to what we're saying today. We understand that's a limitation. We weren't trying to stifle debate about this. And we didn't do but, this on purpose. We no, it kind of came up this way. But you feel free to either text or call us any time about this matter or any other matter. And if you hear this show and you you know think we're off base or want to respond to something, you feel free to call next week. Lord willing, we'll be back on live on the air. You call in. If you want to text about this, Please text us at 260-6120 or 610-6120. Uh, 
260-6220. And we appreciate you listening today. And thank you. And I hope you'll tune in again next week. God bless you. Open my God.